Good morning, church family. Uh, How many of you have ever been sent somewhere? Someone has said, I send you there. Probably a lot of you, right? Kids, have you ever been sent to your room? If you're an employee or a kid at school, have you ever been sent home sick? Our team, our team that we just talked about, we sent our team to Uganda. What else we got? This summer, we sent a couple of our kids off to camp. I always think it's kind of funny to say we sent them to camp. It almost sounds like we didn't want them. We wanted to get rid of them, send them to camp. But, it, but it's a good thing going off to camp, right? Uh, perhaps some of you have sent uh, a student off to college. Uh, as a country, we send our military personnel overseas on deployment. Uh, perhaps you've had an opportunity to be sent by your employer to a conference or a learning opportunity or a training. So there's lots of things that you are sent to, right? And in each of those situations, the sender has a purpose for sending you. There's, there's something to be accomplished. There's a reason, there's a, there's a reason, there's an intention, there's a goal that the sender has in sending you. And so uh, I titled this morning's message, Live, Living Sent. We want to learn how to live sent. What does that mean? So grab your Bible and open to Mark chapter 6. We're going to start at verse 1. As you may know, we are in a series called God-Man as we study God's Word right all the way through the book of Mark, which is a story of Jesus' life and ministry. So in our series, we're now in Mark chapter 6. I want you to bring your Bible every Sunday if you would. It might be a paper Bible. It might be a digital Bible. Either way, open to Mark chapter 6, and we'll start at verse 1 here in just a moment. And as you get there, let me pray for our time in God's Word. Father, we thank you for the safe return of our, uh, our Uganda team. God, we thank you for that this is your world and that we, uh, this morning, join followers of Jesus all over the globe worshiping you. And now, God, we look to your word where you speak to us. And God, as you teach many, many around our Father's world today, would you teach us through your word uh, as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So we want to live sent. And as we study God's word today, then, we want to we be asking, okay, well, then who's sending us and why? And what will it be like for us out there? If we live sent, what will it be like? And how do we go about that? So, Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Keep your finger in the text, as always. I'm going to read some verses, then we'll talk, and I'll read some verses, and we'll talk, etc. Okay, here we go. Mark 6, verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. This is speaking of Jesus. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? It's interesting, it's like there was this astonishment about the incredible teaching and the wisdom that they were hearing from Jesus, and yet it's almost like their tone shifted as they started to ask those questions. They, how, how are such mighty things done by this guy? That's, that's kind of the, what's underlying here. 
And when they say, is not this the carpenter? They're, they're not using carpenter as a derogatory term. The, car, the word carpenter here was a, a craftsman of some kind. It definitely could have been a carpenter. It could have been a stonemason. It's not a derogatory question. It's saying, here's a regular guy with a regular job. You know, we knew this guy. What's changed all of a sudden? Where, where's all this amazing teaching coming from? And then, you know, and they, and they bring up his family there in that verse. They call him the son of Mary, and they mention his brothers and his sisters. And so they just think, this is the guy we know. Where is all this coming from? You know, in those days, it was most common to refer to someone by the name of their father, son of. And here, it's interesting to note that they refer to Jesus as son of Mary. And it's quite possible that what's going on underneath the surface of that comment is an awareness by these people, because this is his hometown, an awareness that Joseph isn't really his biological father. And therefore, there's, almost a, there's possibly an insinuation in their tone of him being an illegitimate child. And then they mention his brothers, and they mention the sisters. And there's no mention of Joseph here uh, likely because Joseph has passed away by this time. And who are these siblings? Who are these brothers and sisters? Well, these are Mary and Joseph's kids that they had after Jesus. That would be the simple explanation, wouldn't it? If Jesus has these brothers and sisters mentioned, these are the children that Mary and Joseph went on to have after Jesus' arrival. Now, this might catch some of us, because we may have heard at some point there are, there are groups out there that teach something called the perpetual virginity of Mary. Now, the virgin birth is critically important and true to what we believe. Are you with me? We believe in our statement of faith that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's the God part of God-man, right? Conceived by the Holy Spirit. Joseph wasn't his biological father but born of the Virgin Mary. That's the human part of the God-man. And so the virgin birth is true and important to what we believe about Jesus. But there is a, a teaching out there called the perpetual virginity of, of Mary. And honestly, there's, there's, no, there's no biblical or historical support to think that that is necessary for, for Mary to have remained a virgin even after Jesus' arrival. You with me? In fact, what would honor God would be a marriage that included activity that would lead to children. That, that was what was expected, and that was what was God-honoring, and that's what occurred. And so that's where these brothers and sisters are. Just uh, thought I would mention that. But here's the whole point of these people's comments. There's a familiarity about Jesus, and their familiarity with Jesus is getting in their way of seeing him as the God-man. Does that make sense? Their familiarity, they, they grew up with him. They had seen him. He had a normal job. He was a regular guy with a normal job, and he had brothers and sisters, and they knew who his parents were. And they, they, Where did this greatness come from? And so as you see, and we continue at the end of verse 3 there, it says, they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them this saying, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. In some ways, that phrase that Jesus mentions there is almost like our phrase, 
familiarity breeds contempt. You heard that? That because we know someone and we're familiar with them and maybe we, we know their, we, human-to-human relationships, we know their faults, and so then that breeds contempt. Well, Jesus doesn't have any faults. Jesus lived a sinless life, and yet their familiarity is sort of causing them to take offense at him. It's, it's, he's the local boy. He, he, he was just like them yesterday. So what makes him so special today? That's how they're feeling. And there's a risk here for you and I as well. As churchgoers, perhaps you've been a churchgoer for a long time, maybe not. But for those of us that are churchgoers, that have maybe grown up in the church, that have read our Bible uh, some, there's a risk here too that our familiarity with Jesus, that our familiarity with some of these stories would cause us to miss and not appreciate the amazing truth that Jesus is the God-man, the promised rescuer, God himself living among us. And so I just, I want to make sure that we take this warning as well, that uh, we don't allow uh, our familiarity with Jesus, our familiarity with his teachings to put us in a spiritual snooze. You know, I pray that instead that we would be in daily awe of what God has done for us. You with me? A few minutes ago, we sang how thankful we are for all that Jesus has done for us. His rescue of us, bringing us from death to life, from darkness to light. His, we should be so thankful for what he's done for us in the sense of eternal salvation. And then hopefully we're aware of the fact that he is continuing to make us new. The Bible says we are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. God's continuing to make us new from the inside out, give us new heart, new desires, that we can honor him with our lives, that we can live for him. I pray that we would be in daily awe of the truth of the gospel. Are you with me, church family? Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated his great love for you in this, that while you were still stuck in sin and rebellion against God, while you were far from earning his favor, Jesus died so that you might live. The gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, I want to I pray that we will live in daily awe of that amazing truth rather than ask those questions and have familiarity breed contempt. Verse 5, And because of their unbelief, because of their questioning, because of their contempt against Jesus, look at verse 5, And Jesus could do no mighty work there. Did you read that? We've been studying Mark for several weeks. I think Jesus has done some impressive things, hasn't he? Hasn't Jesus over and over demonstrated his incredible power? And here it says, and Jesus could do no mighty work there. That's an amazing thing to think about, that somehow perhaps their unbelief thwarted his power? No. No. I don't think this passage is saying that their unbelief thwarts his power. His power is there. God's power is unlimited. God does whatever he pleases. Correct? But their unbelief, their, their lack of openness, their hard hearts, their resistance to who Jesus is has, has caused Jesus to 
not want to demonstrate any more power. He chooses not to demonstrate his awesome power because of their lack of faith, because he, he finds himself up against their hard hearts. And I think that you and I, in our occasional unbelief, miss out on experiencing God's power. And I'm not just talking about, you know, if you're not a Christian yet. Even if you're a Christian, I think that our occasional or perhaps frequent unbelief about God and what he's done and his promises and what he wants to do with our lives, I think our unbelief causes us to miss out on experiencing more of God's power. And, And as a church family, here we are, a local church family, followers of Jesus gathered together, I think that nothing will come of the ministry of Faith Evangelical Free Church unless we come to Jesus with a hopeful and bold faith, believing in his power and expecting him to do big things. And you know what? You know what's fun? A bunch of you see that God's up to big things. I've been so encouraged and excited. Many of you are pointing that out to me, that God's working, that God is big at Faith Free Church, that he's on the move, that he's got plans for us, that he wants to do cool things. And so that comes, I think, uh, even more, we will get to experience his power as we come to him with a bold and hopeful faith. Now, uh, here's something ironic. We just look at verse five again. Every time I think of the word ironic, I think of that old song by Alanis Morissette. Isn't it ironic? Some of you are grinning and laughing. The weird thing about that song by Alanis Morissette is that she said, isn't it ironic? And then everything she describes isn't really ironic. They're just dumb. (laughs) But here's some irony. Here I think there is some irony. Verse 5. And Jesus could do no mighty work there, except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. That's ironic. It's like even when Jesus is holding back, even when he's not displaying his full power, he's holding back. Not a few people got healed. That's our mighty God. And he marveled, verse 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching Um, somebody I read this week, an author and a pastor, wrote this about verse 6. How terrifying is it to amaze God with one's unbelief? Elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus is is marveling at, at someone's faith. Here, Jesus is marveling. He's amazed at unbelief. I, I think if you... If, <laughs> I hope if you set out to amaze our great God, I hope that isn't how you amaze him, with your unbelief. When God reveals himself to us, his power and his work in our lives, uh, don't blow it off. Don't try to explain it away. And and here's the thing we got to say about unbelief. I think there's two kinds of unbelief. Certainly the kind of unbelief that first comes to our mind is rejection of who Jesus is rejection that Jesus is the one who can save, right? We who are followers of Christ tend to think of unbelievers as those who have rejected Christ, yes? But I don't think what we grapple with enough 
is another kind of unbelief, and that's the kind of unbelief that I think each one of us has as a follower of Jesus. Even as followers of Jesus, we demonstrate unbelief sometimes. I do. Unbelief means we don't believe God. I think that we all have situations in our lives, areas of our lives, that we refuse to give over to God because we don't believe he's good enough. We don't believe he has the power to help us. We don't think he can forgive that sin. So we have unbelief about God's amazing person and power and presence and forgiveness and love and salvation. We have unbelief in it because we think we have to do it ourselves. We have unbelief when I think I need control of this area of my life. I need to hang on to this. God, you can have this area, but I need to control this because I can do it better. That's unbelief. We have unbelief when we find our identity in things other than Christ, when we find our identity in our job, in our spouse, in our children, in other relationships, when we find our identity based on how cool we are, how many people like us on Facebook, when we find our identity in things other than what Jesus thinks of you. And by the way, your identity, if you're a follower of Jesus, is as a beloved son, daughter of the king, adopted into his family and rescued from death and given eternal life. That's your identity. And when we live in some other identity, it's unbelief. And that's what we're talking about this morning is, is living sent, living for Jesus, even amidst unbelief. Um, so here's the setting as we come forward now in the, in the passage, as, as you keep your finger in the text there. We're going to get going again in a minute. As we continue then, here's the hostile environment we face. The hostile environment, we just saw the unbelief of Jesus' own hometown. And oh, by the way, sneak preview of next week's passage, a follower of Jesus is executed by beheading. This is the hostile environment that Christians find themselves in. And so instead of the word sent, I think we should consider the word stay. I think it's much safer to stay where we are, don't you? Living sent sounds a little scary. I'm just going to stay. Things are more comfortable over here. Uganda team, you probably should have just stayed here. That would have been safer. My kids that we sent off to camp, oh, much safer to stay at home. Much less junk food and much, less, and much more safe. Don't send kids off to college. Don't send our military overseas. Don't go on that errand that your wife asked you to run. Don't go on that errand. Don't be sent. Stay. It's much easier. Wait a second. Did, did staying accomplish any of the mission? I said earlier, all those examples of us being sent, there's a purpose that the sender has. And if we stay, do we accomplish any of those purposes? No. Followers of Jesus are sent by Jesus to minister amidst unbelief. Friends, as a follower of Jesus, you're an ambassador of God's kingdom and you're called to bring about restoration and deliverance. But yes, that will lead to some conflict. Look at this verse with me. This is from, it's on your screen. This is John chapter 17. This is Jesus praying to the Father. Jesus says to God, I have given them, my followers, I have given them your word and the world has hated them. Because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Some of us hear this phrase once in a while, we're in the world, but not of the world. What Jesus is saying here when we're not of the world is he's saying this is not our permanent home 
we as followers of Jesus are passing through. Our real home is with God in eternity. You with me? So, I'm thinking, you know, if, if I'm hearing Jesus say this, and Jesus says, hey man, the world hates them. They're really not of this world. I'm thinking, okay, cool, Jesus. Well, then I'll just stay. Just, you know, protect me. I don't want to be out there in the world. Just let me sit over here and do nothing. But what's the next verse? The next verse says, Jesus prays these words. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Sometimes we wish, I think, we could just be taken out of the world. Sometimes I think we wish that Jesus would come back earlier so we wouldn't have to deal with the unbelief around us. But verse 18 tells us that Jesus prays these these words that Jesus says to the Father, as you have sent me into the world, so I, Jesus, send my followers into the world. You're to live sent, friends. Jesus knows the world of unbelief that you live amidst, and he sends you into it. He doesn't just pluck you as a follower of Jesus out and protect you and save you for later. He says, I send them into the world because followers of Jesus are sent to Jesus, by Jesus to minister amidst unbelief. Verse 7. Hopefully you're following along there. We're still Mark chapter 6. Now we're at verse 7. Jesus called the 12 disciples, his closest friends, his followers, and he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Remember I said earlier, when we're sent, there's a reason that we're sent. We're on a mission, and the mission is to minister, to serve others, to love others, to proclaim the good news of Jesus to all those around us. So to, in, the, in verse 7, what, what ministering looked like to those disciples was going to be to cast out demons and to preach the word. We find out in verse 30. And here, what does that look like for us today in 2017 as followers of Jesus? To minister, to be sent out to minister, looks a lot of different ways. Let God's love flow into you and flow out of you because of the amazing abundance of what God has done for you. Bask in it, enjoy it, know it, let it change you, and let his love overflow out of you as you minister to those around you. The way you care, the way you pray, the way you talk, the way you act, the way you uh, serve, and the way you love. And yes, verse 12 Uh, And then later, actually in verse 30, indicates to us that the mission also includes the proclamation of God's word. That we say, yes, we do things to proclaim God's love. Yes, we serve to demonstrate God's love. But we are clearly also called to use words to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And here's the thing. That sounds like a tall order to a lot of us. It sounds a little overwhelming to be sent into the world to be representatives of the great God. But what does Jesus do there in verse 7? He gives them the authority. This is amazing that we are extensions. As followers of Jesus, we are extensions of Jesus' ministry. So the next couple of verses just go on to... um, explain what kind of provisions we need for the journey and, and that these, his early disciples could expect hospitality. Verse 8, 
He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts. Just wear sandals and don't put on two tunics. Jesus sends them out in pairs. That's sensible. You have someone along with you for companionship and accountability and, and support. And, and, and all, all that's going on here is Jesus says, hey, don't take this, don't take that. It seems, like, it seems like he's sending them out pretty unprepared. But two things are going on. Number one, they're to expect hospitality. They're to expect the care of others, that God cares for them through others. And the other thing is, as he sends them out without all this stuff, is he's expecting them to depend on him, not material things. That makes sense? Verse 10. And Jesus said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, here's the unbelief, here's the rejection that we will face as we are sent out to be ministers of Jesus. Verse 11, if any place will not receive you or they will not listen to you, then when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Followers of Jesus are sent by Jesus to minister amidst unbelief. We saw that unbelief earlier in Jesus' hometown, and here we see it again. Um, as, as Jesus sent out his followers, it was standard for, for those that were proclaiming news, those that were uh, teaching and going around. It was, it was standard to accept hospitality. And yet, the way uh, that people would receive them and house them and feed them, etc. And yet, the way Jesus says this in these last couple of verses, it, it, it indicates that some households... Some whole villages will reject, will not be welcoming. That uh, as Jesus had, had encountered unbelief in his own hometown, as he sends you and I out into the world, there will be times when we encounter unbelief. And in that case, um, there are times when we can do as Jesus did and move on and focus ministry Focus serving where we're welcome. Uh, what's the shake the dust off the feet thing? It sounds kind of rude and mean to us. I mean, we don't understand the customs of the time. It sounds like we, okay, go send out, I send you out, go love Jesus and go show the love of God and be rude. Shake your dust off your feet on them. It's, that's what it sounds like to us, but... Uh, I don't think it's a rude thing. It's not intended to be mean. It's a symbolic declaration that they have come up against hard-heartedness. It, it's, it's, a, it's actually a, uh, instead of being a mean thing to demonstrate, it's actually a pretty merciful thing to demonstrate. It's to kind of point out to someone their spiritual status, to make them think about their condition before God. It, it was a symbolic way of saying um, that the message was not being received. And we too, when we desire to minister to people, will sometimes encounter hard hearts. We will come up against lack of receptivity. We will face unbelief. Um, and you know what? I think we need to give people a break sometimes on this. I think God has rescued so many of, of you in this room. God has rescued you, brought you from life to death, brought you from darkness to light. He's changing you. He's making you a new person. And we're excited, and we want other people to know that. And we know that we have life in eternity with God and that others are doomed to eternity apart from God, eternal conscious punishment of hell. And so it's urgent to us to share the good news, I hope. But I think we got to give people a break here sometimes because we are excited and we want to tell, and we should. 
sometimes the people we're talking to know that we're, we were just like them. So what just changed? What, what, what changed? What are they up to now? Uh, this guy was just like me, and now he's acting like he's something more than me. We need to make sure that as we share God's love with people, we let them know, no, it's not about me. It's not about me being a good person. It's not about me being impressive and pulling myself up by the bootstraps. It's about what God has done in me. Does that make sense? The followers of Jesus are sent by Jesus to minister amidst unbelief. So what happens, let's see in in our passage, what happens when they are sent by Jesus? Verse 12. And they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons. Wait a second, back up. Verse 12. This is the, his followers. This is not Jesus now. This is Jesus sending them out. And it says, They went out and they proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out demons, and they anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This isn't talking about Jesus. It's talking about his followers who he sent out. The 12, his followers, are experiencing great power here. His followers are experiencing great power in delivering the good news to an unbelieving world. They find people repenting and turning from their sin. They find people delivered from evil. They find sick being healed. It's as if Jesus was there. Everything we've seen in Mark right now was all these miracles and power, and Jesus was doing it. Jesus was there, right? And now he sends out his followers, and this cool stuff is still happening as if Jesus was there. He's using his followers because he sent them out with his authority. This gives us a glimpse of what we, the church, this should give us a glimpse of what we as followers of Jesus have an opportunity to do as we obey, as we recognize our calling, that we are spirit-empowered ministers of the gospel of Jesus. This should give us a glimpse of what we as the church have the opportunity to do as we proclaim the good news of Jesus to a lost and hurting, unbelieving world. And do you believe that we'll have that success? That as he sends us, he is with us, and he's empowered us, and he's authorized us with his power, and we will have the opportunity to bring, to be used to bring people new life. What's been going on in Mark in the last couple of chapters? What have we seen about who Jesus is in the last couple of chapters? We've seen the God-man with incredible power. We saw a God-man who has power over his creation. Remember the storm? Tossing the boat, and with a word, it was calm. We have a God-man who has power over his creation. We have a a God-man who has power over Satan and his forces. Remember the man with demons, and, and, and he was cast out and made whole again. Remember, we have a Savior who has power over sickness. Last week, we had a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years and found healing and we have a God, man, savior, rescuer, Jesus who has power even over 
death itself. Remember last week, Jairus' daughter, 12 years old, dead and brought back to life. The God-man is powerful and has authority over everyone and everything. He can do all things. Yes? And yet, you know what I see over and over in Mark? Repeatedly, we see that Jesus doesn't do all of it himself. He has all power. He could rescue all people. And yet, repeatedly, Jesus doesn't do all of the ministry himself. Here in our passage, he sends his followers out to serve, to love, to teach. And does he send them out alone? No. He sends them with his authority. And and this is true for a local church family, too. One leader or a group of leaders, your staff team, your elders— Uh, even your fellow Christians, one person or even a small group of people would never be able to love, to serve, to know, to care for each of you individually. One leader or a group of our leaders are, are not sufficient in their human limitations to know and care for and serve and give and make sure that each one of you is growing spiritually. But you know what? Those, that one leader or that group of leaders don't have to because Jesus sends you out as spirit-empowered ministers of the gospel. You as a follower of Jesus, you are sent to be his representative, to be his ambassadors. Who are we sent to? Well, we said earlier when we talked about unbelief, Certainly the first people that come to our mind when we think about unbelief are those who are far from Jesus, those who are living apart from him. Yes, you, follower of Jesus, are a spirit-empowered minister of the gospel, and you are sent to love them and to proclaim the good news so that they will cross from death to life. But you know what else? I think you're also sent to those sitting next to you or in the row behind you that struggle with unbelief that won't give over a certain area of their life, that that know Jesus but don't want to really follow him. I think we're also called to minister to those fellow Christians we know who are clinging to control, who don't believe that God is who he says he is, that don't trust his promises fully, that don't think that he can help them with their problem. You're called to minister to them too. Maybe today. Maybe when we finish worship together and you're having conversations with those around you, maybe today the Holy Spirit is going to give you wisdom and insight into how someone near you is experiencing unbelief and how you can teach the good news to them, how you can remind them of God's love for them. Perhaps you're going to be able to do that for one another today or this week as we move forward as a church family. Let me ask you to stand. And I have a couple of scriptures we're going to read together, and then I'll pray. And as we we stand, I invite the ushers to come as well and prepare to receive this morning's offering. Um, After we pray, we will have an opportunity to give our gifts and to lift our voices 
in song and worship him that way too. Uh, Followers of Jesus are sent by Jesus to minister amidst unbelief. And so I want you to read these two Bible verses that will be on the screen with me, and let's see what we notice going on here. Let's read this one together. This is Jesus speaking. Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Sorry. What happens before we're sent out? We follow Jesus. Before he makes you a fisher of men, you're with him. Next verse. Let's read this out loud. And he appointed 12 so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Notice, before they are sent out, they're with Jesus. Father God, we come before you this morning needing you. We come before you this morning Uh, unable in our own abilities, our own strength to, to really live for you. And so, Father, we start by coming to you. God, as we just read in your word, God, we want to first be with you. So help us, Father, this morning to know you more, to listen to your voice in our lives, to increasingly obey what you call us to. God, would you help us to grow in you more and more? And God, as we are with you, and as we are being changed, we also want to live sent. God, help us not to live in fear, scared about what we might encounter out there. But God, give us a boldness that comes to you because you have sent us. And because you are with us as we go. Father, teach us to be dependent on you. Humbled and amazed that you have made us extensions of your ministry, of your work. God, we thank you for the great love that you demonstrated on the cross. We thank you for the gift of sending your son to live and die and be raised again that we might find life in you. God, as we know you more, we want to live for you in every way. God, would you make us conduits of your love to the world around us? Would you you make us your servants that give and share and minister? Father, help us obey you. Help us go where you lead us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.